Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The only limit to our realization of tomorrow will be our doubts of today. Is a quote from the American statesman and leader, the 32nd President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today, someone who's playing a key role in the technology startup ecosystem, helping unlock the possibilities of tomorrow for today's founders. Our guest today is Matt Allen, co-founder and co-chief executive officer of Tractor Ventures, a non-bank lender focused on technology startups. Before this, Matt was part of the venture capital and startup team at Amazon Web Services and previously held chief technology officer roles. He's also chairman of AI-driven experience platform QSIC, co-founder of Side Stage Ventures, and a member of the investment committee of the Alice Anderson Fund, a $10 million co-investment fund developed by the Victorian government to invest into women-lead startups. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in India, Japan, and Germany, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, board and executive search firm. Unfazed by the appeal of launching rockets, Matt and the team Attractive Ventures focus on consistency, reliability, and giving founders the optionality to scale. He also touches on the excitement that comes with the unknown when it comes to investing in game-changing technologies the evolution of the role of founders and the type of founders that make great CEOs. So sit back and enjoy Rolling the Dice. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. One of your mantras has been, don't screw the founder by taking too much equity. Pretty rich coming from a VC sort of type background, isn't it? It really is. The thing about that, especially when talking to technology founders who a lot of them uh, aspiring to grow a very big business. It's usually going to be quite capital intensive along the way, which means they're going to have to sell parts of their company to capitalize it so they can continue to grow. Mm-hmm. The challenge you've got, especially as an early stage investor, you know, when you're writing that very first check in where there isn't a lot to go on, you might be tempted to come in and buy a big chunk of the company, half their company. Mm-hmm. Right now, the challenge and the balance we've got with those two things is. Most entrepreneurs and founders don't want to feel like they're working for anyone else. That's why they're doing it for themselves. Absolutely. So on the assumption that the very best 
growing tech companies that go down that um, externally funded route with other people yeah. will need to probably continue to have to raise for a long time because they're not necessarily in that cash flow positive profitable state, especially once you're on the VC bandwagon. Yep. You know, the likelihood of you having to sell you know, 10 to 20 to 25% of your company every time you go to market, could be every couple of years, means the founder ends up with a tiny bit of equity. Hopefully, it's of a very valuable company. However, that first check-in can make or break them. And the reason being is the next check that comes in behind them want to know that, you know, the founder is going to have enough equity to stay motivated, focused and and not feel like they're working for, you know, just their shareholders and that their diminishing part of this pie is going to be valuable in the long run. So as a person who writes the first check into these businesses, you can make it really easy or really hard down the line. And it's a, it's a tension, right? It's a balance between I don't want to own half of 1% of a tiny brand new company. I need to own enough to feel like I'm getting good value for my equity, but I want the founder to feel like that they're they're all in and, and that when they look at that share register and that cap table and they see their percentage and they feel like they're going to be, you know, a millionaire or a billionaire at the end of it, right? They've got to feel that way. So when you're writing the checks, are you going for the full ride all the way through or do you pull out at some point? So interesting enough, a little bit of both. When we write checks into companies. It's called primary capital. The, all the money goes onto the balance sheet. Yep. Uh, the company gets to use that capital to grow. As a company scales, especially when they're scaling well and they're growing well and, and there's then there's lots of investors who want to get onto that cap table, uh, the likelihood of being able to have a secondary would sell some of my old shares to the new person because all they really want is a percentage of the company and they don't necessarily always thinking, oh, my money, all my money needs to go into growing this company, especially when they're a bit further down the track. So personally, um, secondaries, which is that for me has been really meaningful for my angel investing career. The reason being is I'm not a super cashed up guy. So when the opportunity takes the money back off that I'd put in means I can go and make five or six more investments. So there's been times when the returns via that secondary transaction, which is not, you know, the company hasn't listed, the company hasn't been acquired. It's just a new funding round where some of those people are happy to buy some of the old shareholders out. Yeah. I usually don't sell everything. I usually sell a portion of it rather than some of it and allows me to continue to be an early stage, as we call angel investor. And I've got a saying that says, if you haven't made an angel investment for six months, you've got to give your badge back, right? <laughs> like it's, it's, a, it's a thing you've got to continually do. Otherwise, you forget how to do it and uh, it, it's, it's never great. Okay. So for how long and how many checks have you written? So this is very much a journey with April, my wife and I, because it's we basically started investing out of our self-managed super that we set up specifically for tech investing. And you're still talking um, to each other. Yeah, still talking <laughs> to each other 25 years on. And then um, and then out of the mortgage, like, you know, conventional wisdom would say, don't, you know, don't borrow to invest in tech companies. And I would strongly recommend it. However, you know, we've always just had a big offset sitting there, which is obviously when, when the cash rate's quite low, you know, putting it over there and hoping that you're going to get a, a decent IRR, which is obviously in a, in a fairly illiquid asset. You just got to got to, that's just the balance we've always done. So it's taken us about 10 years to get to 50. Um, and there was, there was um, you know, a steady okay. state for the first five years. And then I actually had some of those secondaries. There was a point where there was quite a significant amount I was able to pull out of a very fast growing company, which allowed me to do a whole bunch more at once um, in the last probably three or four years. So I'm sure there's a little banner that says, don't try this at home. Must pop up exactly sometime. Right. Okay. But you have tried it at home. What are you basing yep. it on? 
So the first half of my career, I was a software developer. So I'm old. So I've been building software for the web mostly since the web came out in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. So I've been self-taught because you couldn't learn at university. You couldn't learn by books because there was none back in the day. You know, when this is when the first web browser came out and it's like the only way you can learn is to is to copy and paste your way to try and understand it. Yes. So being a technologist for the first half of my career um, allowed me to understand technology and sort of ride that that wave through the internet, through the dot-com boom, pop out the other side, keep going. Uh, my first technology startup, I started in 1999, right before the, the boom sort of busted. But that allowed me to do a couple of things. It allowed me to understand how the technology works. Uh, a bunch of my mates are also technologists. But as it turns out over time, I'm more interested in business than I am in technology. But having a deep understanding of how it all works gave me a little bit of an edge and also allowed my other mates who were technologists who were like had an idea and wanted to go start something to come and talk to me first because I was like the techie guy that had more of a like a like spoke about business all the time and and spoke about uh you know and 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 transitioned away from coding yep. into um after that I became a, a technical recruiter so I ran a recruiting company I knew, um, I knew a good guy somewhere along the lines I thought yeah. you had some good qualities there <laughs> purely for software developers and and you will know this recruiting is a sales job. You know, yep. usually it's it's by people that are fairly au fait with sales and yep. people. Our shtick was we were all devs. So we were coming in from a position of we understand the problem you're trying to solve, you know, from a software level. We can nerd out with people, whether they be the customer being the CTO or the client being the, the software developer, mm-hmm. and really kind of understand and get the nuance of that right, where there's a lot of acronyms, there's a lot of things that are compatible and incompatible with each other, and being able to sort of have that conversation with both sides of that transaction and get it right yep. um, rather than just sort of, you know, machine gunning a bunch of resumes and hoping one ticks the box was our stick. So so by the time I turned into a recruiter, my software developer mates who were starting to start companies mm-hmm. would come to me and say, you know, you're a business guy. Like, what happens next? How do we do this thing? And I'd be like, yeah, I can rally some troops and we can put some money into company and you can quit your job and then you can go focus on this full time. And that happened multiple times. Big bets they're placing, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I mean, they are, and, and it's, it's all risky. And the, the same thing I say to anyone who's doing these early stage investing is you've got to kind of forget about the money it's gone. Like, it's just sort of popped out of your head. It's probably in a spreadsheet somewhere. But in reality, you know, it's not like you're checking your stock portfolio and watch it go up and down every day. It's like, I really like these people. I really think they're solving a problem that they deeply understand. Mm-hmm. And this is going to take years and years and years and years. And, you know, I can't ring them up and ask for my money back. It is a like the ultimate illiquid asset. Like the likelihood of getting your money out on your whim or your timeline is probably zero. Okay. So then what are you looking at when someone comes with a proposition to you? To be clear, I, I don't do a lot of personal angel investing anymore. I've sort of got a few other big focuses, but a lot of the time for me, it's lived experience. So, you know, when they talk about the problem they're trying to solve and they're like, this problem has haunted me through my whole career. And, you know, it's, it, only now can I go off and solve it. I feel like I've got the solution. I'm building this solution, mm-hmm. you know, to, to go off and solve this problem. So, you know, lived uh, experience versus observed experience. Yes. And our um, portfolio of founders actually has a bias towards um, older founders okay. because they've been there and done that, right? So, you know, the stereotype is you're back, the guy who pulled out of Harvard and solved the problem when they were 21 and created, you know, the next social network. But, when you think about the world in general, mm-hmm. a lot of software is business-to-business software. Yep. You know, they need to really understand their customer. 
they probably have been their customer quite often or been the person who would be a customer. Yes. And you don't get that overnight, right? You can't really can't dive in deep into that unless you have that, you know, experience over time, which allows you to to understand the problem and then start forming the solution with it. So I'm looking for people that really get that problem, can demonstrate that the solution they're building is more variable than the problem. The problem's pretty constant and the solution, it's not necessarily the one they've got sitting right in front of them right now it's a version of something it might be and they're not really they're more attached to solving the problem than the current solution because the solution moves around right we all use software that changes features and stuff like that so some people are very uh like this is the thing and they're less inclined to be able to listen to the customers and really focus on that problem i guess the question is do they know how to commercialize it do they, do, they, do, so, do they know which platforms, <laughs> avenues? Uh, as you say, right, they're the technology guys and they yep. love it and it's a passion yep. and they're bringing you in. But what, what is their sort of level of commercial sort of reasoning? It's 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 really interesting because that applies specifically to what we do now where we do um, financing for growing companies. So okay. the way I describe it is quite often initially there's a problem and the founder is wrapping a solution around that problem and then they're wrapping a business around that solution. And then eventually the nuance in there is they're figuring out how the right way to capitalize that business to implement that solution to solve that problem in that order, right? So the first thing is like, this problem is really pissing me off. Yes. And then like, I think I've got a way to solve it. And they start solving it, tinkering and building things, you know, and they might show it to some people who start using it and they might start billing them for it. But, you know, the business around the solution, around the problem in sort of is really important. And as you've touched on, they may be product domain experts or problem domain experts even and may not have a business bone in their body. And that can be challenging. There's been a few founders I've spoke to that, um, you know, that I've even invested in. The companies are now shut down because they were so nervous to turn the revenue on and start charging for it and it's not quite ready and we're not there yet. And I'm like, well, this money we've put in your bank account a year ago is not going to last forever, right? And at some point in time, we've got to wrap that business model around the solution, around the problem. And, you know, you've got to do that. And obviously, you know, when you're speaking about being a technology venture-backed company, a lot of the time the VCs will fund growth that may not have the business model sorted out. Yes. You know, they may be they may be looking for the right business model. It could be a recurring business model or whatever the case may be. But, you know, for me, um, quite often I, I do want to have that conversation with them pretty early and understand exactly how they're going to make some money in this thing. Okay. So during this period of time, you've also spent time with Amazon. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Amazon Web Services. Yep, the cloud. <laughs> so what was that all about in the sense of what did you take from it? Yeah, so a good friend of mine uh, was was running the startup and venture capital team here in Australia, which was uh, was barely a team. It was two people when I got there, um, part of an 80-person team globally. So it's yeah, around right. the whole world. Okay. And um, it was really, uh, there's two things I was trying to solve for was, was one, you know, use the skills I had with investing and so forth to try and see whether they were, they were commercially um, useful. And second of all, see whether or not I was employable. So I've been a, a self-employed for a long time. Okay. I'm like, I wonder if I, I wonder if I could actually do a job. So the answer was, I could do that job at that particular, you know, role in the company. It was fascinating. It was a business development role, so it wasn't a sales role. I didn't have to I didn't have any of those kind of quotas. Yep. Um. And you know, the brief to me was like, you seem to be, 
you know, interested in tech founders, you've obviously got this growing portfolio of founders. Come and help us talk to them about how the cloud can work for them better. Amazon wasn't investing money, but we had lots of cloud credits. So, you know, I, I could allocate up to 100 grand real money into their bank account, which would drop their bill down to zero for as long as it took, right? So, oh, yeah. so Smart. picking up the phone and saying, hey, it's Matt from AWS, you know, can we have a chat? The first mm. of all, they're like, where are you? I'm like, well, I'm in, I'm in 8 Exhibition Street in Melbourne. They're like, really? I'm like, yeah, that's our office. And you're here in Australia? That was confusing to some people. Mm. Um, and then it was like, sure, come around, tell me what you do. So my job was to make sure that I found the best founders, that they were really using the cloud to the best ability, you know, and then help them grow better businesses. So my job was to help them get them onto stages at our conferences and talk to lots of customers and connect the dots. I was just a big dot connector, which... You know, having been a previous recruiter, as you know, our job is to sort of hold a lot of context of a lot of people doing and connect the right dots at the right time. So, it was a bit of a continuation of that. But it was actually the spot where I met so many founders and saw the real problem that we're solving at my current company called Tractor Ventures. And the problem that we saw was I used to get these spreadsheets with little charts in them for every company about their billing data. So obviously we couldn't see their actual data, but you could see how much they were paying for the Amazon services. Yes. And some of them were growing like a weed, right? They just sort of up and to the right at a rapid clip. Yep. And I'd click on the link and go have a look at their URL and, and you're like, who are these people? And you call them up and they're like a couple of blokes out at Ringwood, you know, in a garage somewhere going, yeah, we've built this thing. And we're like, well, how do you, how did you fund this thing? They're like, what do you mean? We, we charge our customers. <laughs> you know, we've solved a problem. We, we saw the problem. We built a solution. We turn on the billing. Next thing you know, we're doing a million dollars in revenue. And they're, you know, and they're, they're a small team, efficient team. And my question is, well, you know, how do you grow from here? Like, how do you capitalize your business? Yep. And, you know, the, the traditional way was do you use venture capital? And venture capital is highly focused on scalable tech businesses. Yes. And, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting funding mechanism, which is, they want a business that can return a hundred to a thousand times their money. So the venture funds here in Australia run anywhere between a $50 million fund or a $30 million fund and a billion dollar fund. Mm -hmm. And every time they write a check, they want that one check to return the whole amount of money. Even that check might only be a tiny fraction of their fund because they work on the theory that we're going to make a lot of bets. Uh, 80% of them are going to go to zero. The company is going to die and that's okay. So it's 80%, that's is roughly the numbers, is it? So yeah, and of those 20%, a small percentage will be a massive outlier and return a thousand times our money and return the entire fund multiple times over. You know, a small handful will be, you know, in that 10 to 100x and then the rest are sort of nothing. Now that mm -hmm. I really think about it. So that's called portfolio theory, right? We're going to make a lot of bets. We know that the vast majority are going to go to zero. Yes. But we want some of them to be the next Canva or the next... Dropbox or all these, you know, these huge companies that generally go off to list on the NASDAQ is usually the way, you know, the, the, the grand plans, they're probably acquired along the way, a lot of them, but they need to be big and to be scalable. So the challenge that I saw when I was at Amazon was speaking to these founders was one of two things, either their business would never be that big, even though it was a scalable technology business, it was usually selling to companies around the world. It's just like, mm, you know, you're not going to be that big or that the founders were like, I'm not willing because when you take venture capital, you got to go fast. We call it the rockets, and this is what we call tractors. So VCs, they fuel up the rockets, they're rocket fuel, right? And rockets are very exciting. You know, they've got a really hard job. They're really hard to land, and they blow up pretty often, right? <laughs> like that's the definition of a rocket, right? So if you're going to take the VC money, that's rocket fuel. Rocket fuel is, is for, for big missions trying to land on the moon or go to Mars. Right. My analogy was we'll let the VCs do the rockets, and we're going to do it with the tractors. The tractors are more consistent and reliable. 
you know, they create really important, you know, functionality for their users, but they're probably not as exciting as the next Canva or, or whatever, right? They're just sort of going about their business and helping their customers do better work. So the, the challenge with some of these founders was we'd love to bring more capital into our business so we can grow faster. Right. But I don't think I'm ever going to go as fast as a rocket. In fact, I don't want to build a rocket. I'm really happy to be a nice, consistent tractor. I'm happy with 50 or 100% year-on-year growth, not two or three or 400% year-on-year growth. You know, and the reason is to grow that fast, you take a lot of capital, you hire a lot of people, it's a bit of a shit show, the wheels fall off, you know, and that's just what you're signing up for. Yep. And the tractors quite often, are, uh, you know, they're living within their own means. They they're sort of they, they hire people behind their revenue so they're not, you know, they don't have to get too far ahead of their skis and capitalise the business very heavily and then invest it all and hope the revenue catches up. Yep. So we built Tractor Ventures and the Tractor, instead of buying shares or buying, you know, buying equity in these businesses and hoping for 100x return, uh, we use revenue, their recurring revenue because they've got these customers that pay every month as an asset. We take an opinion and a position on it and we lend against it. So they're able to bring forward some of their revenue. So this is the unique play here? Yeah, this is the unique play. So we do revenue-based financing. So we believe that the asset that these companies have, which are all non-tangible businesses, so they've all, they're all software businesses mostly. Some of them have some hardware attached to them, but the majority of the value they're creating is with intellectual property and software. So they're non-tangible. And the problem at a macro level is – if you go and start a hairdresser or a plumbing business, yep. a bank will finance the fit out of your hairdresser. If you go and say, I wanted to create a hairdresser in Turak, they've got all the stats on what hairdressers in Turak do and they'll lend you the money, they'll finance it up and you'll pay it off over time. And if you want to be a plumber, they'll lend you asset finance your truck and whatever. You go to a bank and say, hey, listen, I've written a bit of software back here that I charge nine ninety five or 50 bucks a month or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. The bank says, cool, um, I don't understand that. Like I can't touch it. I can't sell it. I can't sell that truck if you don't make the payment. How does it work? Yep. So it's very difficult to get – it's easy enough to get equity, you know, to sell shares to people that want a big, big return. Yep. It's difficult to sell shares to people if you can't promise a big, big return. And it's difficult to borrow money from anyone because it's a non-tangible asset business that people don't understand. The banks are traditionally unsecured business lending in Australia is a weird spot to live in. Um, there aren't very many – the banks don't do it very well. You know, a lot of the banks will lend you some money as long as you secure it against everything, your house, your dog, your jet ski, your kids, whatever. But a lot of founders building technology companies aren't willing to do that, right? They're like, hang on a minute, like this is a good business. I don't think I should do that. So there's obviously the, the process of that. So we built Tractor Ventures to solve that exact problem, which is how do you look into a technology business, understand the quality of their revenue, yep. and then take a position on it and lend them some money and they'll pay it back over the next, you know, one, two years. And the way we do that is we actually hook deeply into their platform. So we hook into Zero and we hook into their their billing platforms and everything. We know exactly what's going on in these businesses. So hook and then means they, penetrate, does it? Hook means we've written software that connects to their software. So okay. we they connect up their accounting platforms into our software, their billing platform. So we know what's going on on, the, on a daily basis. And okay. the way they pay us back is via a top-line revenue share. So we'll negotiate that you're going to share 7% of your revenue with us until you pay this principal interest back. We think it's going to take a couple of years. If you grow faster, it will come back to us a little bit quicker. If you grow slower than expected, it'll come back a bit longer. And that's the risk we take. We know exactly what our return is going to be. We don't know how long it's going to take. So to do that, we need to be connected into their platforms to know exactly what the, the cash flow and the heartbeat of this business is so that we can 
you know, pull the payment out every month. And it varies. So it's a it's a fixed percentage, but obviously a variable amount because not every business bills the same amount every month. That sure. hopefully goes up and to the right in general. But you know, there's seasonality. Sometimes it goes down. Sometimes it goes up. And that's just that's just how our business works. So we're a non-bank lender. We focus heavily on tech companies. And at the moment, we're two years old. Uh, we've done 90 loans over two years, with the majority of those being in the last nine months. So we've quadrupled the business last year. And it's it's really fascinating being a non-bank lender in this space where very few people play. Talk us through the landscape, Matt. What's actually out there? Like what is knocking at the door? There's a lot. So we think about things as an asset class. So the asset class that we talk to are companies that are technology-based. So they yes. have the ability to scale. Yep. You know, we don't lend to services companies where they're constrained by bums on seats. We don't lend to offline companies like, you know, plumbers and hairdressers. It's not what we do. You've got your prospers and your mules and stuff like that. We do companies that have the ability to scale, mm-hmm. either locally or globally, mm-hmm. but they're not risky enough for venture capital, but they're too risky for banks. And when okay. you think about that as an asset class, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a broad church. Because there's a lot of software that does some pretty weird things out there for a very particular purpose that is probably doing millions of dollars a year in revenue. And if they had some extra capital that came into it, they could grow faster. But they're not willing to sacrifice this nice, consistently growing software business to put venture capital in it that makes them, forces them to grow even really, really quickly, which they don't want to do because it destabilizes their business. Gotcha. So that's what we really focus on. We do fund some hardware as well. So a lot of these businesses that are building hardware products or Internet of Things products or whatever the case may be, they get a big order. They've then got to go off and build, manufacture and test these things before it's out in the field and generating revenue. We can take that risk off balance sheet and we can fund that as well, which is fascinating again because that requires us to get in and understand how the business works. You know, we understand when the cash moves in, when the cash moves out, you know, the margins they can afford, so on and so forth. And a lot of these businesses are great because if it's software or even hardware, they run at huge margins. They're not thin margin games. They're usually thick margin games to the tune of sometimes 85 90% margin on software. So there's a lot of really interesting businesses back there who are looking for ways to inject some capital in their business to affect their top-line growth, and then they're happy to actually use us to do that. So where are you seeing the actual growth in software? Which particular elements of it? I'm not going to be able to rattle them all off, off some, but we basically segment into six types of segments. And it's funny, you think about a normal lender, it might be hairdressers and then there might be a geographical location and that's sort of your segment is like yep. hairdressers in Turak or plumbers in Manly. Yep. And they can tell you all about plumbers in Manly because they've got a bunch of data. So what we're building also is this massive amount of data. Of, but the segmentation is, the, is usually the, the way they sell so is it recurring revenue? Is it once-off revenue? And then who their customer is. So are you enterprise sales on a recurring? Are you enterprise sales on a contract? Uh, you know, do you sell to consumers, SME? So th- we segment them differently. Enterprise sales is a really interesting one, which is, you know, you've got these big whales of customers quite often the time. They're slow moving and the sales funnel can look really, uh, really, really exciting but you've also got to sort of deliver on them at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to be able to sort of grab some of that revenue that's about to happen, pull it forwards, deploy it now and accelerate that growth, that's really interesting. Uh, a lot of the things where it's sort of that that inventory advance where, you know, your sales team wants to sign a huge purchase order, 
but you don't actually have the the capital available to scale up the the manufacturing side of your business to actually deliver it. In fact, if we sign this and delivered it, the the cash flow gap would be you know would bankrupt the business. Yeah, you know, we running would be running cash flow negative for for a little while, but yeah. then massive jump in revenue off the back of it. But this sort of time in the middle, so we're seeing a lot of that, which is uh, you know we sell devices to enterprise or, or around the world. They really want to do it, but I'm looking at my manufacturing costs and the time of that and then the revenue turning on and going there's a big fat hole here i don't want to sell shares to fund it because selling shares before the revenue is extremely expensive right yep you want to you want to sell them after if at all yes so we're able to sort of help and get in there and that requires a a, the deep understanding of the business which we love to do and the customers they're coming out of the woodwork are they so they're breaking away from established relationships or established brands some are. I would say the vast majority have never borrowed money before because they haven't had the ability to. So it's actually more a little bit of sort of blue ocean than taking away from. There's been in the last 12 months, there's been some overseas lenders like Wayfair and these e-commerce guys that have pulled out of the market. You may have read. They're just like, yes. Oop, Australia, we're out. Yep. So yep. there's definitely some of those facilities that we've gone and go, oh, well, you know, we can do we can do the same thing as them or or a slightly different offering or a slightly better offering sometimes. Yeah. And the customer's like, hey, this thing's about to roll off because they, you know, they didn't make them pay it out. They just let them roll it out. And then can we, you know, can roll you guys in? So that's definitely been a conversation. You know, the use cases for our money is generally it's a bootstrap company, which means there's no external investors, just the founders. Mm-hmm. And they want to accelerate. They're an externally backed company from from other people, but they don't need to raise any money because they're going very well. But they know that they can put money in the top and they will accelerate. So, drop a dollar in the top of the machine and two fall out the bottom. They yeah. can probably acquire customers via a channel, whether it be yeah. advertising or whatever. And quite often, um, there's some amazing VC backed companies, those type that I mentioned, who have sold shares to those venture capital. They need to raise more money. They are raising more money, but Right now, it's the prices are probably the prices of the shares are probably lower than they were before. So they're trying yes. to sell fewer shares. Yep, and they use some of our money to to counter selling as many shares and save dilution. So the founder, back to our original conversation, the founder will own more of their company because they sold fewer and use some of our money to bring the same amount of capital in to grow the company, but sell fewer shares in the meantime. Therefore, retain more of their own business as they scale up and save dilution. This podcast is brought to you by Blenheim Partners, international board and executive search firm. Blenheim Partners guide and advise boards and executive teams on their most critical appointments. You're not worried at all of all the sort of the chatter at the moment regarding the valuations of software companies. You know, last couple of nights, Google was in the press, obviously, in the last couple of days. There was a lot yep. to drop off in terms of value. Yeah. There's been some other billions, companies out tens there. Tens of billions. Yeah, hundreds of billions, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Hundreds of billions. Yeah, so that's, hundreds of billions. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Um. So, luckily, as a lender, the valuation of the company doesn't even come into play. Like, I don't care whether you're a $100 million company or a $0 million company, right? Like, it's ultimately is like the diligence that, that my team does is very – and we have a whole origination platform that we use to analyze these businesses and pull in both quantitative and qualitative data to give them a risk score. We actually risk score and give a credit and risk score to every single company we talk to, which okay. then use to determine the size and shape or whether, A, whether we can, and then if we can, the size and shape of these loans. So the valuation of these companies is kind of neither here nor there as a lender. Gotcha. There is another side of our business where we're able to help them. If they do want our help, we've got a we've got a side of the business that is focused on helping them grow their businesses I was and potentially ask you about raise that. capital. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where we do earn a little bit of um a, we earn the option to buy into the business. So we earn the option to buy uh, you know, a couple of percent of the business. 
mm-hmm. at today's fair market valuation. We're not asking, and that that to your question is, we do have a conversation with them about trying to find a fair market valuation. They were all comfortable. We don't want to come in at, at penny stocks and come in at a, a really low valuation. That's unfair for the founder. Mm-hmm. We want to come in at a fair market valuation, which today is probably less than it was twelve months ago. But it's still not you're not crazy, and it's not nothing. So do you want to share to the audience some of the success stories you've seen in the last number of years? Actually, just this week, I had an exit. Um, it wasn't spectacular. I had an IRR of probably 5 or 6%, which is not what you want. You know, you want an IRR of 40 or 50% when you get these things. But there's a company in my portfolio called BuildKite, and it's a very technical tool. Again, two mates of mine, software engineers, said, look, we've solved this problem that I use at work, and I want to go and sell it to other people. So... Back in the day, we did a very small round back in the day, which is a couple of hundred grand. It didn't, it wasn't a lot of money, but those guys actually took that money. And the promise that they said is like, we're not going to, we're going to grow fast, but we're not going to be on the traditional rocket path. By the time we spent this money, which is purely for our salaries, because they could do everything themselves, they didn't hire anyone else. We're going to make sure the company can pay for our salaries by the time we spent this money. So they did. So they got to the point where it was cash flow neutral and then it started to grow and they, Basically, did seven and a half percent month on month growth for seventy five months in a row. That's pretty impressive. At which point in time, we did one of those big secondary transactions and just went, you know what? There's a we've built this amazing company. Uh, the, the, you know, the team was much much bigger than of course. And every time the monthly recurring revenue went up ten grand, they went out and hired someone else. You know, and then they sort of built the team behind the revenue, and that's just really unheard of because usually it's like, give me two hundred grand, cool, we spent the two hundred grand, but the revenue's only. 10% of what we're spending every month, I need to go sell some more equity. They just didn't do that. They've now, they, they did a round earlier this year. They announced that with two local VCs, um, Airtree and uh, OneVentures, and Michelle has taken a, a seat on their board. And, you know, they are on that trajectory now. They are on that, that fast growth trajectory. There's 100 people on the team. They do tens of millions of dollars a year in revenue. You know, and in 2014, when we backed them, it was two blokes with zero revenue. So that's like that to me. That's the epitome of of an interesting sort of middle ground. So it's not the traditional venture story where it's sell some equity, raise some money, spend the money, keep doing that because the revenue is nowhere near what we need to pay all these people. Yep. They sort of went the middle ground, which is yeah, we sold a little bit of the company. It wasn't a lot. It was it was actually less than ten percent. So I didn't do a big one. But the trajectory is is real. Like that is a, a massive company, and their the clients they have are global. You know, there's logos in there would m- melt your mind who use this software. That really is an amazing story. That has some of their clients pay them over a million dollars a year per client. You know, because they've got big engineering teams that use it. So, like that's an amazing story. You know, it went from closely held. I think there was only nine of us that put that original money in. And then off it went. So that's like that's an exciting story. Just out of interest, then, based on your experience, what was your gut instinct when you put the money in? This is going to make it, or I'm still or I'm still rolling the dice. Like, what did you feel? There was definitely I'm still rolling the dice. Like, so I I knew the founders well. Like they were my mates. Yeah. You know, one of them. Yeah, but that's, but that's at, sometimes even worse too, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes. So there is a lot of people that say like I'd never invest in my mates. I'm like, okay, so. On the assumption that the money I'm putting in is is disposable, yeah, okay. um, you yeah. know, and it's not, you know, if I don't, it's not like I can't feed the kids because I've made this investment. That's not the case, right? So it's an investment, which is a high risk investment. What I did know, because I was also, as we said, a software developer before, mm. is like mm. the way you're solving this particular problem, which is a global problem, is unique, and I think you've got something special there. And it turns out they had. 
it turns out they got a lot of traction very early and was able to retain a lot of those customers for a long, long time. How do they get the traction? That's what fascinates me. So they've gone from being a nobody's heard of them to mm-hmm. global clients, you're saying, spending yep. over a million bucks plus a year yep. all right, and building. How do they get the clients? And the second part to my question, why did those clients leave their existing relationships to come and join these guys build it out of a garage or whatever the case is? Exactly. Uh, really good question. So a lot of the initial clients were Melbourne-based scale-ups. One of them worked at Envato, which is a privately held company that does a couple of hundred million dollars a year in revenue. Other one worked at a company called Pin Payments, which is a payment gateway here in out of Perth and Melbourne. Yep. Um, so we'd been involved in the community of technologists in Melbourne. So the Ruby on Rails community, which is an open source program language back in the day, uh, still there. Um, you know, our mates all worked at realestate.com.au, which is a big customer to start with. Their, their old jobs became customers. Our mates tried it, used it, and still use it. And then the thing about these, which is called dev tools, so tools for developers, is devs change jobs and take them with them. So what will happen is you'll see one customer sort of drop down one user here and then they'll pop up at this other user and you get this whole new account because they're like, at my last job, we solved that problem this way and it was amazing. Uh, I've walked into this new job. It's a bit of a shit show. Let me let me fix it for you. I've got a solution over here and you get a new customer that way. And it turns out the devs move around the world. So quite often you'll see them pop up at a, some SaaS company in Europe like, yep. where the hell do they come? Oh, that guy. That guy used to work over there. I remember that guy. And that's kind of what happened. Just kicked up the whole thing. How many of them, from your experience again, are actually cut it as CEOs? You know, they might be brilliant dev, great yep. visionaries. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. But execution's everything, isn't it? Uh, execution's everything. And, and people people are everything as well, right? Uh, look, I would say that there's the transition from – nerd to founder to CEO is a janky one for everybody. I don't think I could point to anyone who's done it well, who did not feel like they were an absolute failure along the way, who is not feeling imposter syndrome, who wasn't like, what the hell am I doing? And some you know, some don't make it. It's kind of frowned upon in technology to sort of hand the reins over to a, you know, a adult supervision and gray-haired, gray-haired CEO. A lot of these investors have definitely backing the founder to take it as far as they possibly can drinking so, the cool eh? yeah 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 you know it's very much a it's very much a um we want you you know especially in the early days right i'm like it's like i think you can solve this problem whether you can lead the team forever is anyone's guess so is this the steve jobs hangover yeah brilliant jerks don't don't go very like they kind of do and then they don't you know they get fired quite often um I've had a few mates that have, have been founders that have been fired usually by their VCs because, you know, they're probably less commercial than they need to be at that stage. You know, by the time you've taken that that rocket fuel, if the rocket's not firing up, like you're going to get some pressure to change stuff. And quite often it's like, well, change me. I'll go back and be the CTO or I'll go find another what to do. And that's that's really confronting for everybody, but it's just that's just par for the course, right? Like you got to – by the time you've got other people's money, OPM, you know, especially that VC money, it's got a high expectations attached to it. You can't dick about. Like, it's yeah. it's, it's go time. Okay. So, just say, flip it back the other way. I am on the, on the rocket or I'm on the tractor, whatever which way we're going to go, but I'm getting growth. Mm-hmm. And I'm the visionary. I'm the founder. I'm now the CEO. And I'm growing this business exceptionally well. How much time am I actually spending on the future? Or is it just, as you say, admin, looking after people, putting out fires? Am I really doing what should be done? Has it been carved out enough to let me do what I'm really good at? 
It's fascinating, right? Because a lot of those founders are like problem-solving technologists. Their happy place is probably writing some code. You know, it might be a while ago since they did that. You know, that company that I mentioned, you know, my example I gave you there, mm-hmm. that founding CTO has gone through all the positions that is back at CEO, but even just the other day tweeted out like, I'm still helping on product. You know, he still sort of comes back to the team and go like, this is what I think we should do and gets down in the weeds and will tinker on the weekends, right? Like, I don't think he's writing code that's going to production anymore. Like, it's not making the, the final product, but, you know, cracking hard problems in prototyping and figuring out and then giving it to the team and go, hey, listen, I think this could be the start of something new. Why don't you sort of go out and flash it out? Flash out could happen often. I mean, I know as the CEO of Tractor where I'm, you know, I was a technologist. I, I'm not writing code here. I've got a product and engineering team to do that. But, you know, my job is definitely make sure I don't run out of money. And a lot of, once you're on the, once you've raised money from other people and you're not profitable, you know, yep. you've kind of got one job, which is make sure we don't run out of money. So yep. raising capital, especially in the current environment, is not a fast process. It's not a fun process. And it takes up, it's basically a full-time job. How do they lead compared to you know conventional leadership? I think it's probably a little bit more directly, probably more likely to be a little more pragmatic, maybe a little bit more product focused, a little you know rather than maybe um, you know, at a higher level, just you know, abstract. You know, like they're used to quite often typing code and turning ideas into software. So it's um, tangible. Yeah, tangible. You know, it's, yeah, okay. the irony is it's, it's very tangible when you're clicking around on your phone or on your computer or whatever. Yep. But the banks still don't like it, right? It's still not tangible, right? Like it's, it's something, obviously, it's solving a problem, but it's not a real thing. So, yep. so it's a fascinating thing of, of leadership. A few days ago, I asked, I did a poll of like, is it risky for a founder to hang on too long or delegate too early? Yeah, and my gut, my gut feeling is hanging on too long is usually a governor to growth, right? If you're the founder who needs to have their finger in every single pie that can't trust their people to get the job done, you know, that's likely to slow growth down quicker than the opposite. Although arguably you hand stuff over too early and your kind of drive and your product stuff or, or any parts of that probably dilutes a little bit too quickly, right? And you're a little bit too far away from the problem because you're way up here and the problem's way down there and maybe those people aren't building the exact quality of product that you are or that you used to. So, you know, there's no right answer there. But I think if I was to say if one was 49%, one's 51%, I'd suggest that hanging on too long probably governs growth. So the ability to delegate well is is a fascinating um a fascinating skill which most don't have. Like a, it's, a, it's just a thing that you don't lots of people don't have by default. And why do I want to join these people? A lot of the time, um, the people that join them also understand the problem, identify with the problem. You know, I, like I, I am potentially a user, or I'm in the I'm in the same market segment that this problem talks to. I've experienced it. A lot of people like chaos, right? Early stage startups are chaotic as hell, um, and a lot of people also want it for the potential financial upside, right? So. A lot of okay. these employees are shareholders, are gifted options at a very, very low price. So, you know, when they do eventually get to the end, hopefully there is a financial transaction. Although I think a lot of that is sort of secondary to I can come here and actually make a big difference. So, you know, at Amazon, when I left, there was a million employees at Amazon globally. Like it's very hard to have an impact when you're the millionth employee. When you're the second employee or the first employee or a co-founder, it's like I can impact everything, which is also as equally as scary as not impacting anything. But I think that is that it is that cool. I can really move the needle here. 
you know, I can really make an impact on this team and hopefully impact those customers. And so, Matt, in general then, if I'm going to go down this path, I need to give equity out if I'm the founder? It's fascinating. So, um, I've exited, built and exited several companies and I certainly err on the side of generosity. So, I'm the founder who I'm only good at two things. Two things I'm personally good at is selling the vision, talking about the vision and raising capital. So in a lending company, which we have, we have sales, we have credit and risk, we have technology, we have uh, operations, we have compliance, we have all these things that I'm like, I'm sure as hell can't do those things. And I need the heads of those divisions to be very incentivized to do the right thing and to yeah, be right. long term. So from day one in this particular company, I've, like my leadership and founding team have owned a big chunk of the company. You know, staff own a lot of this company. Some founders go the other way, and it's like, nope. You know, I'm not. I'm, I'm only going to give it to very key people. Most people I know, um, most tech companies I know, give it to everybody, right? And 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 usually it's not a lot. Usually it's you know usually end up talking about not how much of the company you own, but what value of the company you got. You. Is a hundred thousand dollars worth of shares, which is zero point zero zero, you know, something percent of the company. But if you ten x it, it'll be worth a million bucks, right? And if and that's always the trajectory that the the rockets are on. And the reason they do that is they quite often they may pay less than market rates and go, here's some equity for you, stick around as long as and it vests over time. So as long as you stick around, it'll be yours, and hopefully that incentivizes you to do a good job and really focus on growing the business. Say the rocket is the rocket built around the founder that they've got the personality the style or the founders mm-hmm. so i need to be on the rocket or mm-hmm. is it built around the idea and the technology if we don't move fast on this someone else is going to come in steal our technology do it at a better price offshore or whatever it is what's it actually built on because i don't want to be burning the midnight oil every night of the week necessarily i know the money's there terrific but that tractor solution sounds pretty pretty good initially it's always you know the founder's passion and desire to solve that problem at scale and go fast, right? Like it's it's like we do need to go fast. It could be because it is a hot area and there's competition heating up, especially once you're VC funded, you know, you're constantly looking at the competition to go, geez, they've just raised X tens of hundreds of million dollars at Y valuation. They're just going to outspend us. And, you know, a lot of the time, you know, that money is – these aren't necessarily very efficient businesses at this point in time because they just use the money to hire a ton of people to salt. Like they brush over inefficiencies by just hiring heaps and heaps of people, which unfortunately then increases their fixed costs, which then means they've got to, you know, they've got to pay for that every month and that gets expensive. A lot of these people are on a big mission. You know, a lot of these people, a lot like one of the missions of the companies I invested in was something along the lines of they have a platform that plugs into a piece of medical hardware to help eradicate the world of disease. Like that is their mission. Their mission is like if we can get our software into more of these hardware devices, which allows more scientists to do their work, close that loop quicker, there'll be more disease eradicated because better drugs are made faster, right? Like when you say that, like I just got goosebumps saying it out loud. Like mm-hmm. you're like, cool. And, you know, I can get oh, behind these people. And, you know, what going slow there is a bad idea, right? They've got to go fast, really. You know, where another example I give is one of our early tractor portfolio companies. They were a, a SaaS company that ran in your web browser and they ran a booking system for martial arts studios and are really good at letting the students book in and do the grading for their belts, you know, the karate belts, green belt, black belt, whatever. And you yeah, think, right. and it was run by two blokes, cousins, and they had customers from 140 countries around the world. 
and they just potted along and slowly build the thing up, right? They're not they're not out to help eradicate the world of disease. They're out to help, you know, people running small businesses run their karate classes better, right? So you can see that that those two businesses sort of run on a different cadence. And the martial arts guys are probably not going to be able to promise anybody they can 100x their returns yeah, on right. the capital they put in. So they were, they were easy to have a bit of service out loan, you know, because they just sort of slowly went up at a couple of percent every month and their overheads were low. They didn't. They were a designer and a developer, so they were able to do everything themselves. They didn't need a cast of thousands. They were pretty good at digital marketing, so they were able to get their Facebook ads working nicely. That's that business, right? Still got, look, to be clear, millions of dollars a year in revenue, handful of people, whereas the other platform I mentioned that is, you know, trying to help eradicate the world of disease, like it's deep technology, right? You need a bunch of big brains that are expensive on that thing. Um, but when they get it right, you know, every scientist in the world can use this platform to do their job better. You know, it's heavily capitalized. You've got to sell that really big vision. And then you've probably got to capitalize it well to get there because you can't potter around on your way to that vision. It's too expensive. So how long are we going to stay in Australia for? If we, I want that big, if, well, if I've got that oh, group right. and I've come and seen yep. you and you helped me out, I'm doing a good job, took your advice, I went the rocket as opposed to the tractor or even mm-hmm. tractor, I've done mm-hmm. well. Yep. But I've got this big vision, as you say, or big mission, as you say. Yep. That mission is going to leave me sitting here in Australia or is technology now that I don't have to be offshore? You definitely don't have to be offshore. A lot of the big companies um, that are heavily VC-backed have their developer presence here in Australia. Like if they're Australian domiciled, they started here. They might have sales teams and support teams where the customers are, but the software is built out of here. Mostly because the Australian government's very generous with their R&D tax grants. You know, you basically get 50%, you know, it varies, but 50% of the money you spend back in cash to reinvest back into your technology. And that's that's handy. You know, when you're paying yeah. your devs one to 200 grand, like each, like, you know, any money back that you can plow back into their salary next year is, is really handy. And some of these, so you can build a really big Australian company. So you think about things like realestate.com.au, car sales, domain, the things that are physically constrained to a country that don't really make sense when you, where what they do to grow is they buy the, the things that are just like them in another country and they sort of, you know, become a bit of a holding company for these things. So in reality, uh, even a lot of my tractors have international customers. Most of them have companies around the world because if it runs in a web browser, uh, you know, it can kind of run for anybody that can read it. There is complications of building software for global companies, time zones, weird stuff like that, which is introduces complexity. But once you've got your head around that, you know, the constraints of having customers from around the world is really can you support them? You know, can you talk to them in the time zone? Are they going to get mad if they ping you at 4 a.m. and you're not replying? You know, there is actually some costs involved in, in doing that. So don't judge a book by its cover then? No, don't do that. <laughs> so what's really surprised you? Any interesting stories really blown you away? Every now and then you see these founders that are like the surprising ones are the things you think are like so niche. What the hell? Like I didn't even know that existed. And then next thing you know, they've got that they're big. One of the ones in my in the tractor portfolio who um, yes. who's made software that monitors outdoor signs. Traditionally, they used to be offline. You know, there'd be a big billboard by the side of the freeway, and they'd go and change it once a month. The advertisers yep. would buy a month worth. But now they're all digital and they're flicking all the time. You know, they flick every six seconds or 10 seconds. And all of a sudden, the people who are buying that ad space are like, mm, did my ad run where I thought it was going to run? Did I get all the eyeballs I thought I was going to get? And, you know, you can't mark your own homework. So he's built a software platform to do that. 
globally, right? It's all over the place. You know, I just came back from a month in the States and they are lagging. They've got lots of offline billboards still. So the growth opportunities are massive, although he's mostly up in Asia. But things like that is like, did you know that there's a software platform written on Amazon Cloud that monitors how often the ads change on things? Like, no, no, nobody thinks about that. You've never thought about that in your life until I just told you, right? Like, it is weird, obscure shit that you don't think about, which turns out to be a massive company with millions of dollars of revenue and growing 100% year on year and blah, blah, blah. So, like, those are the founders that are fascinating. Going, I know a lot about this really weird problem. I'm going to go and solve it. And they tell you about it. It's like, I've never had that thought before in my life. Never once has that crossed my mind. Is that the diamond today? Niche first general? When you're thinking about technology companies, we talk about like this TAM, this total addressable market. Like how, how many customers is there for that thing? So, you know, you ask me, <laughs> hey, thinking about Tractor again, like that, those tech companies that are not risky enough for venture but too risky for banks, how many of those? Yeah. You know what my answer is? I don't fucking know. Lots. <laughs> um, um, but lots is enough, right? And, but a lot of them are like, how many billboards are there to manage? You're like, oh, probably tens of hundreds of millions globally. Like, wow. And it's niche in the fact that the people who run these businesses have got this sort of pointy end of a wedge inside into a problem that is probably actually global, but, you know, they've started really small. So a lot of these B2B software, especially, where it's like, how many customers are there for that thing? You're like, well, I don't really know, but I'm just going to start solving this problem. Here we go. Then you think about someone like a Canva. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we've all had a tinker in a web browser and played with Canva and busted out a, a, a funny graphic or something. Like <laughs> the answer is everybody, anyone on the computer is a customer. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of customers. But I think the niche things is you can also charge more quite often, right? If you go off and solve a very specific problem, you know, you can go in and say, look, I know exactly what the if you use my software, you will know you are spending three hours less a day doing that boring thing you do. I'm going to charge you 100 bucks, and they go, yeah, that's fair. You know, that kind of thing where where the the niche it is, the more likely you are to deeply understand, the more likely you are to be able to charge for it because it's going to be materially impactful to the user, even though there yeah. may not be many of them to start with. Where, you know, Canva is like, cool, you can do your thing for free, and if you use that particular graphic, I'll charge you a buck. A couple of things here. So you mentioned Canva and, and others like that, right? How important then early stage is to get brand? Because let's say let's say there was another company which is very similar to Canva, which turned up eight months, nine months later, had more funding, had bigger backers, came in in a better way. How important is it for me to get brand? That I go, no, no, go Canva. That's the way to go. Yeah. So maybe a re- slight rephrasing of the question is: is distribution via social proof, which is what the brand is really good for, right? So, you know, I, I can answer here with my my tractor hat on, which is. It's a stupid brand. Like, like what, what Tractor Ventures, I keep getting ads on my, my Instagram for agricultural things and I get all this spam for agricultural That's things. Right. Nobody knows what the hell we do. But <laughs> I guarantee you that if you asked any tech founder in Australia, like, who's the best one to do revenue-based financing, there'll be one answer and it's us, right? So, I think brand is really is important. Is that because it was first in? And uh, then built? We weren't necessarily first in. We were pretty early, but we weren't first. But it's certainly a brand that that sticks, right? It, it's memorable. You may not know why it's memorable and it's a bit silly and it feels like an outlier, but it works. Also, I think brand is such a, a, a broad statement nowadays, right? So is it, you know, the name, the way it looks, what it does? I think the product you sell needs to be good. Eventually, it needs to be the best, but brand probably 
can quite often trump product, especially if it's a um if there is a lot of velocity behind it. Because you can sort of catch the product up. But I mean, a lot of people would go the opposite and say, you know, the product needs to be amazing and the brand we can muck around with later. So I, I do think distribution is the interesting one. You know, the, the adage in startup land is something like, you know, success, startup needs to get traction before the incumbent gets disappeared or something like that. Or it's like we, they need to get big enough before the big guys go, hang on a minute, there's something interesting over there. And they just point the fire hose at it, right? Yeah, exactly. So, right. um, that's always something you're thinking about when you're building your tech company. And there's traction under the radar as well, right? Yeah, a lot of the time, you know, I don't recommend anybody doing anything in stealth, like, you know, doing it and, and, and being protective of stuff because I personally believe the more people who know about your stuff, the more likely you are to be able to get some inputs back, whether they be positive or negative. But doing everything in stealth, behind doors, you know, in closed things, it's a real inhibitor to getting that 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 customer feedback a lot of the time or even market feedback, you know, and you might think you're building the best product on earth, but could it be better if you, you know, told more people about it? I know, but that sort of flies into the face of what we learned many years ago. I'm sharing my IP. I'm sharing my ideas. That's what I, yeah. someone else could trump me on that or but, someone else could just take that little bit and run it better than I could. Yeah, so like the assumption there is is that there's somebody out there doing something very similar. You know, they've got the same degree of understanding you do. And brand is brand is is hard to copy, right? Like it's 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 very difficult to copy the, you know, for lack of a better term, the vibe. You know, like the the people, the the voice, the whatever. Like I know that our competition, you know, watch what we do and they're subscribed to our newsletter and and so on and so forth. And that's just the way it happens, right? Like it's there's nothing you can do about that. And one thing um, at Amazon, you know, takeaway from Amazon is. You know, they are customer obsessed. They're like, we, we talk to our customers, we listen to our customers, we build for our customers, we really ignore what's going on in competition. And the reason being is if someone's copying you, they're never going to get ahead of you because they're always catching up. You know, and, and Amazon's thesis was if we listen to our customers and give them what they want and some of the things they want are never going to change, they're never going to want higher prices with fewer choice, you know, some of these really fundamental things, we do that for them, we'll be fine. And it was the least uh, competition-obsessed company I've ever seen. They just – mostly because they were generally – the competition were also rants as well, right? Like they were also – they were no – they couldn't cut it with versus AWS. They couldn't cut it versus Amazon.com. They just didn't care. But really, it was just like how do we give the things to our customers really, really quickly and, and listen to what they want? You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Matt Allen. In our next episode, I sit down with Ian Bailey, Managing Director of Kmart Group. I definitely think you've got to find people with the right the right aptitude. So I, I love people who are humble. Uh, I think ego is a real problem uh, if you're looking at team-based environments and something like a retail is so team-based because uh, you, you need combinations of people to work together to get outcomes. So people who are humble, really important. People who are willing to get right in, get their hands dirty, really important. Uh, they've got to want to learn. Yeah, and then occasionally need technical expertise. You know, it sort of helps if you're running supply chain that you know what distribution centers are. So there's times you need some technical expertise as well because of the nature of the role. But uh, we generally prioritize the, the attributes and the core capabilities as long as the technical pieces are adequate. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now back to the show. So when you walked into that, okay, admittedly, there's two of you, you started up and you built it. But what was the culture set out to be? Been yep. advising a lot of startups. You've been advising technology companies, and suddenly this big, you know, big behemoth, US yeah. giant, yeah, comes in. 
So lucky for me, my boss Ian and I, our good mates, are also pretty loose. So and the job was um, <laughs> the job was like we were we are, we were reported to Seattle via APAC in Singapore down in the little old Melbourne, which and he was my boss in Sydney. So there were like four levels of of removal. And really, you know, when I was hired, they're like, listen, we don't have too many structured goals right now. What I want you to do is just go out and listen to founders and help them. Like go, find out what you can do to help them. You know, use Amazon, use the brand, use the leverage, use the other people inside Amazon to help these founders build a better business on top of our cloud, which means they'll use more cloud and everyone's happy, right? It's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. You know, that worked well for, for a long time. Um, you know, towards the end, two and a half years later, there was definitely more constraints and rules and here's the 15 goals we'd like you to do. And I'm like, you know, 13 of those are stupid. I'm not going to do them. And they're like, well, you probably should. And I'm like, I think I'm done here. So um, <laughs> it was it was probably through a growth phase in our little patch of the business that that was being very impactful without too many constraints at that particular point in time. So, and I, and I know that, um, you know, they have these Amazon leadership principles that they, they live and die by these things. There's 14 of them. It starts with customer obsession, ends with deliver results. And I think there's 12 others in between. And they were used every day in conversation. And the times at so Amazon right. when I, you know, I never got in trouble where I was questioned was when I wasn't doing something. I never got questioned for doing something. I always like, why haven't you done it? Like, just do it. You know, like we hired people. Bar is really high for hiring. Once you're in, they kind of get out of your way. And it's up to you to just go get stuff done. You know, one of those principles is are right a lot. You know, we hire people who are right a lot. You know, like they, their gut instinct tells them what to do and they just do it. And most of the time they're right. And, you know, the, another one was bias for action. Like we want you to do stuff. Don't sit around waiting. We're not here. You don't need consensus. You just got to get some stuff done. So those two things combined allowed me to do some stuff that, you know, I didn't really need to ask permission to. I just got on with it and it was generally helpful for customers and, and things like that. So like the culture in there was definitely that bias for action was a thing. There was very much like no one's going to tell you what to do. If you think it's the right thing to do, just go and do it. And that was pretty liberating for me, yeah. being a founder. You know, like my job is yep. just to solve problems. And I'd walk in, I'm like, hey, you know, there's something over here I need to do. I just go and do it. You know, they had decent budget, a fair bit of rope, you know, tried not to hang myself too often. Do you find that same autonomy in the startups you're, you're investing in now or similar? Yeah, especially when you're building things that don't exist, right? When you're, you know, most of these people are forging ahead, and having to back themselves to take risks. You know, you know, a lot of people will tell you that founders are super risky. I don't think they are. I think they're taking very calculated risks, right? When you, especially in, in your, in a capital constrained environment, you know, you don't have tons of profits to go and drive back in. You really got to choose where your energy and your dollars go. So, you know, most of the founders I know, especially the tractor ones, are even better at being efficient with their capital, right? If you just raise 50 million bucks from a VC and it's sitting in a bank account, you know, the likelihood of you not hiring people is low. <laughs> you know, like you're going to hire a bunch of people and hope like hell they work out, you know. If you sit and look in your bank account and, and, you know, it's plus minus whatever on a monthly basis and the revenue from last month pays us to pay for this month, you're far more particular about what you do. But none of these founders like being told what to do. Like that, that is a trait that you will definitely find. And the ones who don't have that bias for action and don't kind of back themselves are the ones that quite often sort of you can, you can what if yourself into the ground as a founder, right? Because you have to work with patchy information and sometimes no information. Uh, you got to just sort of take that next step. So, what are they running on? Just sheer, sheer <laughs> instinct? A, a lot of time. A lot of them can be data driven eventually. Eventually, yep. you have 
customer behavior and you have customers who are using it who are moaning about certain things or asking for certain things and you sort of start to think but initially a lot of the time it's like i think this might work you know you can go and research it you can run cheap experiments of putting stuff in front of people and seeing whether they get through to the click the buy button and whether or not they fill their credit card and even if you know haven't hooked the credit card up yet like there's ways to run experiments as to you know try and uh understand people's behavior and understand where they want to buy the thing you've got but eventually you've got to build something and sort of get it out there. And then a lot of the time, the best ones are around really taking that feedback and, and iterating on the, the solution, you know, to continually try and solve that problem we spoke to earlier because the yes. problem is probably relatively static. It might change a yep. little bit over time, but it really is sort of taking any data you've got to, to build a better product. If they walked into a room right now, are they knocking me over with confidence? So have they got the X factor or have they just got that inner confidence? I'm going to back myself. I know what I'm doing, but I'm sure there's no one real, of course. But yeah. what do you see? It depends which country you're in. So um, in America, they're all amazing salespeople. They'll all tell you that they're the next big thing. They're the next Google. You should definitely invest in my company. We are doing this. We're crushing it. We're killing it. It's amazing. Um, in Australia, I think we are more reserved by default. I think our friends... Uh, generally, socially, that tall poppy thing will take you down a peg if you're too confident. And the best way I can can describe this to you is we've all seen the startup pitch decks that have got sort of, and this is what we're going to do over the next three years or next five years of growth. You know, that exact same slide will make Australian investors will go, that's, that's pretty ballsy. You're sure you can do it? And the exact same slide in America would be like the last guy said he was going to do 10x that. You're obviously shit because he said he was going to do 10 uh, I'm not going to invest in you because the competition for investment money is not is really like the last boat that came through who told them we we're going to do this amazing thing and and you, you're fighting for other investments. You know what I mean? Like other founders are all mm. vying for the same dollar. So over in the states, we quite often get you know told we need to amp it up and dial up that ambition and really do that. And I, I also think even in Australia we need to amp it up a little bit. Even if your mates at the pub will give you shit about it, you know confidence and and the ability to go i don't actually know but if we get this right this is how big it can be and the question a lot of the vcs ask is like how big could this be not like what's the likelihood of you doing it it's how big could it be and those two things sort of push and pull against each other because you can't have a zero likelihood and you know even a hundred percent likelihood of a two million dollar a year company the VCs can't fuel that rocket up because the rocket's too small, right? That's a tiny yeah. little tiny little firecracker. They want an Elon-style rocket, right? You know, could be good for a tractor. You know, that could, could be great. But in that particular funding model, you've got a, you know, small probability of a disproportionately large return. So coming back to your question, what are these founders like? Those founders are absolutely driven on the thing they're going to do. They may present super confidently. They may be super meek and mild, but... I would suggest that more on the top 50th percentile of, of confidence rather than the, the lower 50th. Are they ruthless? Some are, yeah, especially in the early days. You can't afford that. There's very few passengers. You don't have time for passengers. Most founders I know are actually quite kind, but pretty pretty precise, you know, like pretty trying to, like given your resource constraint, you know, everyone's got to be on the bus and pulling in the same direction. It's It's really, you know, dealing with people that aren't all in is terribly distracting. Yeah. What's the do's and don'ts? What's the good advice? What's the bad advice? As an investor, a lot of founders will, will you know, will show you an amazing deck which talks about how brilliant they're going to be. 
but the the ability to execute on that, you know, you can take certain risks. You can take a risk on the market. You can take a risk on the execution. You can take a risk on the founders. I'd strongly recommend not taking a risk on the founders early days if you're investing, you know, like try and really spend some time with them. I've always said, for me, there's some arbitrary trust threshold when I'm talking to founders and then they'll cross it and I'm in, right? And then, yeah, okay. so as an investor, you know, a recommendation if you're doing early investing is pick a check size doesn't have to be big and just stick to it. Say, so, you know, I do 10 grand checks or I do 50 grand checks or whatever, that's all I do. So th- that takes that decision point out. It's like, this is what I do. This is, you know, try and stick to my own knitting. As a founder, when you're off talking to people and trying to, if you're trying to raise capital to get your company going, most investors are really dumb. I am. Like, I know about what I know, but I know about what you know. And excitement is inversely correlated to how little I know. If I don't know a lot, I might get really excited about something. And then the person who knows a lot about it was like, I'm not going to invest in those guys. They're morons, right? So those two things are create a whole bunch of weird feedback loops when you're off raising because you're pitching your new yeah. thing, especially if it's domain-specific or scientific or something where it's like, like this is not simple. This is not Instagram for cats. This is curing cancer. So my advice to founders is if your early backers understand the problem so you don't have to explain the problem to them, you're more likely to get good input, right? So, you know, if, if those founders who are building software technology to take data out of a very scientific machine and they're like so the problem is the data that comes out of the machine is really hard to interpret and there's only a thousand people in the world that can do it and we've automated that you know if you walk into someone who knows how that machine works and is suffers the problem you know who is also hopefully able to invest because they're rich i would have those conversations if you could seek those people out that's always better than trying to explain to random people about difficult problems and then explain to them, you know, because, you know, what success might look like. Should I go into business with a good mate or more so, should I go into business with my partner like you are? Yes, I've got two co-founders. One's my best friend and one's my wife. Um, (laughs) So I went into business with my wife after 20 years of marriage. We do work in different parts of the business. So we do have, you know, she is very operational as a COO and I'm one of the co-CEOs. I don't know. Um, we have a disproportionately large number of life partners as founders at Tractor. And the reason being is because we're not VC and because we're not putting that pressure on the business to go really fast. If you've got quite often all these founders' eggs are in one basket, right? The, the only asset yeah. they've got is this business. That's so it. if you're a husband yeah. and wife team to then take capital that expects you to three, 400% year on your growth and that's not what you're doing right now and you both work in it and, you know, it's more likely that you may not want to take go down that path. And a lot of VCs won't back life partner people. But then again, Mel and Cliff from Canva, now married, were you know, life partners. So for every counter, for everything that says don't back life partners, it's messy. There's a, yeah, but one of the most valuable software companies in the world is, is run by life partners. Don't back single founders because, you know, you got no redundancy built in. Some of the biggest companies in the world, NASDAQ listed, were run by single founders. Like, there is no rhyme nor reason. Should you go with your mate? I mean, for me, I've done businesses with my mates before. It can be equally as good as it is bad. (laughs) Government. Yep. Are we building the platform or supporting enough this whole opportunity, as you say, they're building a wave of startup? Mm. It's a polarizing discussion, the old government. So I sit on the investment committee of a thing called the Alice Anderson Fund here in Victoria. It's a 
$10 million Victorian government fund that invests in women-led startups. So for every $3 they raise from the public market or, you know, from from whoever, the private market, sorry, we'll put in a buck. So we'll match it three to one. And of that buck, 15% of it's a grant. So we only get 85 cents worth of shares for every dollar we put in. 50% is non-dilutive, which I think is really important. For the founders to get money from us as a government department, one of their investors needs to bring the investment to us. They need to show us all the diligence they've done. We look at it and go, this looks like a good deal. We'll put some money in. So, like, we're very passive. You know, we don't take board seats. We're none of that. We're just sort of matching what the market is suggesting and we're making decisions based on the diligence and the quality of the deal. I like that. But a lot of people, there's a lot of founders, it's like government, you do infrastructure, you make sure that, you know, we can get our R&D money really quickly and it allows us to run our business, open up the visas so we can get smart people from overseas because there sure as hell is enough of them here. You know, we need those people here to help us grow our businesses. Don't get in our way. Don't slow it down. Don't put undue burden on them or us to get the job done. You know, infrastructure things like um, in Sydney, there's a thing called the Startup Hub, which is above Wynyard Station, four or five yes. floors. Like that thing's a lightning rod. I can't walk through that place without seeing 10 people I know. Like that's a really smart move to just get like, you know, the government can make serendipity easy by sort of putting a bit of a lightning rod on, on a location. Like I think they did a good job. It's not nicest building on earth but you know your startup founders you're there to work hard not it doesn't have to look great i mean they're they're doing tech central above central station as well which i think will be the same thing in a modern environment i really like that as a way that government can help you know governments will do a lot of grants and stuff but geez you know the the energy that founders put into grants are almost the same energy they use to raising capital surely they're not selling shares for it but they're not free they're definitely not free that's for sure so you know i'd love to see some more grants that are that are easier to attain, but, you know, like, I guess they've got to counter, counter the people taking the piss as well. So, you know, that's that's a bit of a balance in there. So I think our government does a reasonable, reasonable good job. I mean, that R&D tax incentive is real. Like, I know people that have absolutely, you know, spent tens of millions on their developers but also pulled tens of millions of dollars back into their business and reinvested it, and without it, they wouldn't be here. So, like, that is a scheme that I think is, is, is really amazing. What's the stats on failure? So there's a lot of data on venture-backed failure because, like we mentioned earlier, they run portfolio theory. They're okay for a whole bunch of them to fail. You know, there's outright failure, bankrupt, gone, shares to zero, founders packed up, went home. There's failure as through the lens of the financial vehicle. So, you know, failure from VCs, like I put in a dollar and three or four years later, they shut it down, I got a dollar back. It's like, that's stupid. I got to give it back to my investors and they didn't want a dollar back. They want a 10 back, you know. Yeah. Um, what we're seeing in the tractor side of things is part of the hypothesis I had on that asset class that I described mm-hmm. is, is the DNA of these founders, they don't fail. Like, like you know, they, they're more capital efficient. They don't fly super close to the sun. They don't run their bank accounts empty. They kind of have got buffers built into things. We're seeing, you know, we haven't seen any failures in our, we haven't seen a loan fail after 90, you know, we have no impaired loans right now, which is, kind of bonkers to think that two years down the track and next month our very first loan has done its full arc and paid all the way back a whole bunch of them are refinanced and and, and got more money in but one that's gone from beginning middle end is done you know come and gone it's amazing that company is is probably i imagine they've tripled their revenue in maybe doubled it two years off the back of that capital has allowed them to invest in some things and off they go so i think 
Failure is quite often a function of the expectation of the capital that's gone into the business. So as a founder, you need to be very acutely aware of the expectations of you're going to take money from other people. Like they can quite often not force failure, but definitely make it so that it's very hard for you to continue working, continue growing. So the thing about venture-backed companies is that most don't fail because they can't raise money. They fail because they can't raise more money, right? So you've raised all this money for people like me. And you're like, hey, this is going to be great. Let's go. And then you do it and it doesn't quite hit the mark because you haven't hit that product market fit yet, whatever reason. And they're like, hey, we need some more money because we've hired 15 people and it costs us 50 grand a month to run this thing. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, like it was great. So when you're raising money, the company needs to be one of two sort of absolute states, which is an amazing story and no numbers. So everyone just believes the story or an amazing story and amazing numbers where the numbers can sort of get your capital coming back in like, well, that's going, we're going to keep going. The challenge is amazing numbers is a massive range depending on who you're talking to and who you get your capital from. So I think those are the things that I really think about, you know, when it comes to what success and failure looks like is choose wisely who you get your capital from and how they expect it to be returned to them. Because if, if you need more of it, you know, and your shareholders are grumpy, or you haven't hit your numbers, it's going to be real hard for you and that might force your hand. You might have to shut it down. Are the banks ever going to change? <laughs> uh, I don't know. So I've recently just pulled in um, uh, a new, well, my first non-exec director. So all our directors are exec and he works on a big ASX listed company. You know, he's like, what do you want to do this thing? You want to be a bank? I, I suggest you don't do that. And the problem we have with Australian banks especially is, you know, they're heavily governed, which is fine and makes them really resilient businesses. Their shareholders love their dividends, right, which means they're obviously extremely profitable. They're profitable probably because the asset classes they back, you know, especially at scale, are dependable and are even less risky than our less risky startups. And I think their their appetite for risk, and I think, you know, in general, Australian banks' appetite for risk is very, very low, Mm. very low. You know, they're Mm. happy to do your mortgage-backed securities all day long, you know, they'll lend you some money secured against something that they know they can they can get it back and do a low LVR. So, you know, even a fire sale to get money back. But progress is quite often a, a factor of risk-taking. So, you know, I think that their ability to take people's money, especially once you're an, once you're an authorised deposit taker, you know, like balancing risk there is, is just what they have to do. So, to answer your question, will they ever change? I hope not because it allows me to grow a really big business and service a bunch of customers that they just don't understand and, and may not ever understand. So, without you being Rocket, although you do hedge yourself because I think you are involved in Rocket still a little bit, aren't you? Yeah, and like the irony is, is Tractor itself quadrupled in everything that we measure last year. So, I've got a Pretty few- Pretty fast Tractor. I've got a few venture capitalists who invest in Tractor because we have shareholders on personal account, not yep. from their company, who is like, if you were in my portfolio, you'd be at the top of it. Like you, like you guys are going really quickly and it's not because – so that's an interesting you know, angle there as well is the capital doesn't make you go fast. The customers make you go fast. If you can find that product market and you get pulled along, that's what will yep. make you go fast. And if you can do that in a capital-efficient way and not have to raise a ton of money, you've probably got a start of a really good business, which may go as fast as a rocket where you don't actually have to fuel it up. We've raised a bunch of money from our shareholders, but they're all individuals and family offices who gotcha. expectations okay. are not the same 
as if they'd love it if they got those returns, but that's not necessarily why they're here. So, so yeah, you know, going fast is a, is a function of of how well your product matches the market demand for it. All right. So if you rolled into a family office tomorrow, and I said that's terrific, I looked at it, it's great great returns here, Matt. Where are you going to be in five years' time? So what is the big plan? We'd love to have a billion dollars of funds under management, and I think half of it will be in the lending side of our business. And we'll actually start up a fund that's not dissimilar to a venture fund. We will buy equity in, in tractors. So the, the companies that are not VC compatible because they're growing nice and consistently, there's still a problem to solve over there with equity, which is the founders running these businesses doing millions and millions of years in revenue. Yep. It's difficult for them to realize some of those, some of the asset they've built. So we'll actually go and buy some of their company off them, continue to let them do what they want to do. They can take some of that money as primary onto the balance sheet so they can grow a bit faster. Some of it they can take off and go buy a house. I have a very, very strong opinion that a de-risked founder personally runs a better business, full stop. If you own your house, you can run a way better business than if you're stressed out that if this business fails, I've got nowhere to live or I'm you know, heavily mortgaged. So that product will help founders you know, take enough of the asset off the table to allow them to go and probably either buy a house or buy their first house, maybe not maybe not the big one on the beaches in Sydney, but certainly enough of them to go, great, now I know that I can really focus on this business and build it. And the, what I've seen, and I personally had this thing, is when I did all those secondaries and paid my mortgage off, my ability to start Tractor went up infinitely because I didn't have to worry about, you know, my, my current state. So, like, that is the big long-term Tractor. We'll have a billion dollars of funds under management, We'll have an equity fund that helps tractor founders do what they want to do and the debt fund that helps them them use that to, to grow their business as well. So what actually is business to you then? Is it just art in a different form? Oh, <laughs> that's an amazing question. Look, I think it's people. Like I, I genuinely believe the people surround yourself with can make or break. You know, if you get up and get to work and you're like, I love my people. And the corollary to that, the opposite of that is like people are a giant pain in the ass. I actually want fewer of them around me rather than I don't want a cast of thousands because I think speed of your business growth um, and, and headcount are uncorrelated. You know, you don't double your size and go twice as fast. It just doesn't work that way. So I think headcount is an awful measure. Efficiency and size are, are not correlated a lot of the time. So at Tractor, we're a very efficient team. One of our metrics we put in our shareholder update is like revenue per employee. Like we're very focused on, and the whole team is incentivized to, to how do we run a better business, right? How do we actually, you know, how do we make sure that when we do hire more people, it's for the right reasons rather than just because it's it's easier to hire someone, let them do that job. You know, we use software, we use technology, we use automation to try and keep our real finger on our pulse to run a capital efficient business. Last question, if you're going to look back at that young Gentlemen, starting out as a tech developer all those years ago, bearing in mind where you're going to, what advice would you give him now? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I spent a lot, the first 40 years of my life, being told I need to be better at the things I'm bad at um, and, and worrying about it. You know, like being told to, look, you know, you're good at this, but you're bad at that. You really should be better at that thing over there. And, okay, well, let me go and try and fix that. And it was 40 years of pain. Like, And then when I turned 40... I just realized that if I doubled down on the shit I was good at and then structured the things around me so that I didn't have to do the things I didn't like and hired people who love doing those things, it was the biggest unlock of my life, you know. So, so you know, if that guy said, look, you're probably going to have to 
do the dishes for a while, but eventually you're going to get good at some things and trying to be this well-rounded generalist is probably a constraint rather than an accelerator. So, you know, when I realize that I'm only good at a couple of things, and I think everybody's only good at two, one or two things. So when I hire my people, I'm like, tell me the two things you're good at. I'm laundry. I'm like, no, you're not. From three through to 15 is absolute diminishing returns. I don't want you to do any of that stuff. Just do the things you're good at. And then allowing people to do that. So my advice to young me is double down on the shit you love and you're good at and be okay with that. And when people say, hey, you should really be better at that detailed thing over there, tell them to go away. <laughs> on that, man, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed today. Thank you very much for making the time. It's been a great conversation. It's my pleasure. Hopefully, it's entertaining to your listeners. And um, if there's anything interesting here, I'm, I'm always happy to, to have a chat with people. And, you know, funnily enough, the things I'm good at are talking about what we do and hopefully telling people why we do what we do. And that involves a whole bunch of stuff. So I try and run as empty a calendar as I possibly can so that when interesting people come along, we can we can help them out. And that, that requires lots of conversations. And that's what I do. How do we contact you? Tractorventures.com is us. My email is matt at tractorventures.com. I tweet too much at Matt Allen. And that's probably, uh, that's probably the best place to find me. On that, you've been listening to No Limitations. No Limitations.